accepting various difficulties that show themselves to us in life. And I was just uh, reflecting this evening before coming in on a rather bare description of human life, which we could describe as uh, the attempt or the struggle to get, have, attain, become what we like and want and to avoid, eliminate, escape from, hide from what we don't like or want. And then we die somewhere in the future. That's a rather bare, (laughs) bleak maybe, but sometimes all too true description of our lives. Trying to get, have, become, attain. Trying to avoid, distract, eliminate, hide from. And then at some unknown point from now onwards, the end of all that. And um, when I was a teenager, that rather bleak vision of uh, human life struck me very forcefully and very depressingly. I remember when I was about 17 or 18, having that sense. On the one hand, feeling a great deal of uh, vibrancy, vitality, uh, passion and possibility in life. A, A vast sense of possibility being kind of young and amazed by life. And at the same time, having this sense that my life wasn't really my own, that it was rather programmed by these compulsions. And in the way of the kind of Pavlovian dog, or donkey with a carrot, only had to have the various carrots of my different desires uh, dangled in front of me and I would charge off after them. I only had to have the things that made me feel uncomfortable or um, agitated put in front of me and however I might choose in some idealistic sense to act I found myself feeling immediately resentful, reactive, fearful, angry, whatever. And that struck me as really uh, tragic, unsatisfying. And the sense going along with all this kind of youthful uh, passion for life, that that can't be it. And the various roads that often seem open to us at that kind of age, we look around in, in the kind of secular society we live in, And what seems to be on offer is various career, study, relationship. Well, that that was what seemed to be on offer to me. And it was very clear to me that none of those things would make much difference to me at that time. That it wasn't a question of finding the right job or the right thing to study or the right relationship the right social scene or whatever that there had to be a response from within to the fact that I felt powerless powerless is a strong word but in many ways powerless in the face of these forces shaping my life the forces we could say of uh, attraction and repulsion being attracted towards the getting, having, becoming what I want, and the force of repulsion against trying to avoid, eliminate, escape from what I didn't want. And so the solution, or at least a a way of looking to me at the time, seemed to be to go travelling, and to kind of ditch 
the opportunities for relationship, career and study in the search for something else, something with more authenticity, something more profound. And uh, I'm not about to give you my travelogue. <laughs> so I'll just skip the boring and confused bits. Or only I'll skip some of There's plenty of boring and confused bits. I'll so, skip some of the boring and confused bits until arriving, uh, not bored, but certainly confused, in India. And after confusing myself a good deal more in India... For the first few months, I came to uh, Dharma teachings, to a retreat much like this one, although a bit longer. And I'd already started to read some books on Buddhism and Eastern religion in some ways, although they were quite obscure and intellectual uh, and theoretical books that gave me a rather strange set of ideas about what Buddhism might be and what meditation might be. But I came to this meditation course and from almost the first teachings I heard something in my heart responded very deeply with a sense of relief in some ways a sense of inspiration and a sense of a good deal of willingness since that this is worth exploring. The relief of the sense of being offered not something to move towards in terms of getting having, or not something to move away from in terms of getting rid of, avoiding, but the offer of a way of responding to life. A way of responding which seemed to be of another order. A, a radical, a revolutionary way of being in life, which puts more emphasis not on the attraction or the repulsion, but in a way of meeting those forces, rather than being blindly dragged around by them. So the first Dharma talk that I heard was about change. Kind of classic Buddhist theme. Anicca in the, in the Pali. So probably very many of you, maybe all of you are familiar with this idea of Anicca. And in the, in the Buddha's teachings it's absolutely central. He pointed out again and again and again how everything is changing, everything is in flux. And we could uh, try to argue and think of some things that don't seem to change very much, like rocks or something. Or we could uh, cite the kind of scientific view that everything's in molecular flux, and then we could agree with the Buddhist teaching oh, yes, everything, even rocks, are changing. But the Buddha doesn't care whether we agree or disagree. The Buddha says, please, look at your life carefully enough to recognise the change in it and see what is your relationship to it. How do we respond to that fact of change? And in many ways I think we're experts on change. We seem to spend huge amounts of our time trying to get things to change. We're very involved in the world of change. You might want to think just uh, today how many times you've wished things would change. Well, we don't have any problem accepting the idea of the change, thank goodness. If there wasn't any change, what if the change stopped in the middle of a meditation period? <laughs> Thank goodness we sit there how many minutes to the bell. <laughs> Thank goodness for change. It'll have to come sometime. 
desperate for change. And yet if we really if we really saw, if we really understood that change is absolutely built into life, then we would see so clearly that it happens by itself. And that all my fretting and struggling and pleading won't make it happen more won't make it happen differently. How much influence did you have? Maybe half of you at any given time may have been pleading for me to ring the bell. How much influence do you think it had? <laughs> None. We know. We know it won't have. Huh? We know. When we're very small, we have this view that what we do affects the whole world in some way. You know the way very young children, they cover their eyes and they say, you can't see me. That's a very, it's a very kind of uh, early developmental way of seeing the world. And in mo- some areas of our life we've grown out of that. And yet maybe the vestiges of it still remain. Because we seem to think, if I plead and plead internally for the bell to ring, maybe it'll ring sooner. I don't know. Maybe we don't believe it'll ring sooner, but we, why do we plead then? Meditation practice is wonderful in as much as, at least in this kind of meditation practice, rather than aiming at any particular experience that we should have, we content ourselves with the experience we've got. And the Buddha points out, this is it. This is where the insight is. This is where the possibility for real understanding and discovery is. Not in some lofty vision with light pouring out of our third eye, but in the mucky old work of facing our lives. And therefore being willing to see what's, what's the insight, what's being missed, what's happening in that process of longing for the bell to ring. It's the same movement, getting, having, becoming. And the belief that goes along with it, if only the bell would ring, what? Everything will be okay? That's what we believe, isn't it? We wouldn't say it philosophically, but that's what we believe. But what, what happens after the bell rings? Oh, then it rings. Oh, fantastic. But then what? Walking meditation. <laughs> <laughs> then we go out and we wander up and down. Ten minutes, twenty minutes, and we think, oh, when's the bell going to ring? <laughs> Same thing, it's extraordinary, same kind of relationship. Oh, if only the bell would ring. And then it rings. Sitting meditation. <laughs> so there must be something interesting. Surely there must be something really worth understanding about what on earth is going on in that relationship. It can't be that the relief is in the bell. I wish it was. If the relief, if the power to really make everything okay was in the bell, all I'd have to do is ring it and we could all go home. So what's happening there? <coughs> we, we long for change. 
we long for things to be different in some way. If we didn't, if we really saw the nature of change, we would recognize that, really recognize, not as an idea, but in the depths of our being, we'd recognize, here we are, and the bell will ring, and that's it. And then any sense of impatience, discomfort, agitation that might arise out of that becomes an opportunity to be with discomfort, to be with agitation, to be with impatience. (coughs) And that's a very profound shift in the way we meet our lives. From being interested in impatience Sorry. from acting out impatience from acting out of impatience when will the bell ring to being interested in impatience and those change the bell will ring impatience comes rather than trying to get all tangled up in our lives getting all kind of confused and agitated about the bell the ringing, the time and the impatience itself, one sees it as the fact of the moment, something really deserving of our interest and our care. In just the same way as the breathing is there for our interest and our care. Our lives are uh, kind of obsessive in this way. And the, the Buddha spoke about that in, in a way that I, I kind of descri- would like to describe in the way he spoke about it, and then maybe uh, speak about it in a more contemporary language. But he pointed to the areas of our life in which we habitually cling, clinging, upadana is the Pali, clinging is this very Buddhist word, which I'm kind of, kind of substitute for obsessing. So he says we cling to sensual desire, we cling to views and opinions, and we cling to being and non-being. And uh, to put that in contemporary language we could say, we obsess around what I want, what I think, and who I am. It's another rather bare description of human life. (laughs) The constant obsessing around what I want, what I think, and who I am. And this this is what we build our life around. Or to put another way, we could say this is what builds our misery. Obsessing around what I want, what I think, (coughs) and who I am. We don't need to go and look very far for examples of what I want. In fact, we just, we just had one with the bell now. And we could find numerous others without uh, looking far and wide into our lives, but just in the day here. And the way we get into trouble with that, not, not because there's anything wrong with wanting itself. There's nothing wrong in that movement towards in itself. But it does cause us a huge amount of agitation and frustration. And because of that, it's really worthy of our attention. It's really worthy of looking what's going on in there that's causing me the discomfort. Is it not normal that if we're sitting here and we're very hot or we're very tired or our legs really ache, we would prefer the bell to ring? course it's okay but it doesn't stop there if it did it would be much more straightforward oh, I'd, I'd rather the bell rang because I'm hot and tired and my leg hurts <coughs> we 
breathing in, wanting the bell to ring. Breathing out, still wanting the bell to ring. No. But it, it doesn't go like that, does it? <laughs> Often. It becomes... Our world shrinks hugely until all that's left is my knee and the bell. <laughs> when our world shrinks to only include myself, the object of my wanting, and the annoying, frustrating or painful gap between the two, then that's called obsessing around what I want. And these rather bare descriptions, I think, are very, very useful for us to look at. Because the storylines we spin in the mind make it all very confusing. We get into a whole scene about uh, how long it might have been and how long it will be till the bell rung and maybe that guy at the front's fallen asleep and... uh, why, why is it 45 minutes anyway? I went to another meditation centre where they only sat for half an hour and isn't that enough? <laughs> so this bare description, can we recognise, this is what we're cultivating awareness for, no? is to recognise what's actually going on. And it's very, very useful to be able to recognise that my world has shrunk to me, to the object of my wanting, and to the frustrated attempt to cross that gap. And that that's a rather honest and naked portrayal of what's, what's happening. It's also rather sobering to start to examine our life honestly in this rather naked context. Because one starts to sense one's responsibility. And we're not always ready for that. What I mean by sensing our responsibility is we would much rather blame. No? We would much rather blame. And blame goes in one of three ways. Blame myself blame someone else, or blame life in general. You know, it's not fair. No. My children teach me about this all the time. Papa, it's not fair! <laughs> it's the mantra of an 11-year-old. It's not fair. And how easily, when we want something and we're frustrated in the getting it. Or we want to push something away, but we're not able to either avoid or escape from it. Blame is there. We so quickly look for it to be someone's fault. Mine, yours, or life in general's. And what would be an example? almost anything we could we might take if the food queue is taking a long time can quickly start to generate blame towards people for being too picky about which vegetables they're taking or whatever it might be if we're sitting in here feeling hot it can generate lots of blame whose idea was it to take the curtains down and wash them today on the hottest day of the year when we need to close the curtains and keep the sun out this is just my own process I'm unpacking (laughs) or easily we start to blame ourselves I I shouldn't be I shouldn't be thinking like that I'm here to meditate I mustn't be judgmental I'm such a useless meditator for thinking about the bell all the time Look at everybody else, serene, (laughs) untroubled, 
utterly unconcerned about the bell. (laughs) The laughter suggests that maybe we're not the only one after all. But there's something more comforting about blaming. Because in some way we're avoiding the real issue. Which is daunting as I say. It's daunting to really accept responsibility for my own discomfort, frustration... Impatience, compulsion, greed, jealousy, uh, confusion, etc., etc., and on and on. And yet, that's the implications of this kind of practice that one starts to see one's responsibility. And what that really means is one sees one's ability to respond rather than whose fault this is and how I can make it change because that's uh, really hard work and it's endless it's endless there'll always be something we want to change. There's always something that's not quite right. There's always something. And that is built in to the nature of obsessing around what I want. So one way the world shrinks is this sense of me, what I want, and the frustrated gap between it. Huh? And however big that perceived gap is, that's the direct measure of our suffering, of our anxiety, our tension. If we thought the bell was going to ring in 20 seconds, would be a different relationship to the gap between me and the bell than if we thought it was going to ring in an hour. And yet... What happens when we get what we want? We should also be very interested in. This is part of obsessing around what I want. And as we saw the example earlier, if only the bell would ring, and it rings, and we feel, oh, wow, fantastic. But how long does that fantastic last? How long until we want something else? Not long at all. Bell rings, we say it's walking meditation, we say okay. But on the way to walking meditation, the holy grail of the tiern starts to glow in the corner. And we feel obliged to make the pilgrimage to the tiern. <laughs> what I want turns into something else I want turns into something else I want but what happens in that process because there is something there is that moment of oh fantastic there's a great deal of relief in getting what we want and that that relief is very significant the problem is we misunderstand the relationship we think When the bell rings, I'll be happy. I.e., the happiness is in the bell, somehow. Not philosophically, we wouldn't say it. But that's how we relate to what I want. When, When it happens, I'll be okay. And when it does happen, indeed, we feel that relief. But clearly, the relief and the bell don't really go together. Because no sooner has it rung, we want something else. 
So what is it that triggers that relief? It's the end of the frustration. Our world expands again from this very tight, very contracted, very obsessive state of me, what I want, and the, de- and the gap between. The getting what I want dissolves the gap. Oh, we feel we're united with the, our beloved bell. <laughs> and, we, and we feel relief. And the relief expands our world. That's the sense of relief is, you know, even in the body language, oh, it's expansive. Whereas obsessing around what I want is contracted, narrow. So the key, what's very significant about that, about that relief is the expansiveness. The ending of the contraction and the dissolving of the gap between me and my beloved. And what is my beloved? It's not the bell, clearly. It's, oh, it's the sense of relief, of ease of being, of expansiveness. And that's where we need to be interested in our responsibility, in our ability to respond to life. In the middle of our wanting. Like I say, there's nothing wrong with the fact that wanting happens. But can we recognise that contraction? And let go of the object, in this case the bell, no? It could be any object that we get involved with obsessing around. And can we be interested in the process itself of wanting? Can we actually relate to that contraction? Because how do we know we want something? It's revealed in this extraordinary capacity of aware- for awareness which we've been exploring and cultivating and practicing. This capacity to recognise what's going on. And that which recognises has room for. That which sees obsession isn't obsessed. That which notices longing has room for it. So when we know, when we find ourselves obsessing around what I want in in any way, whether it's some uh, rather crude example, excuse me, like the bell ringing or the lunch queue or something else or whether it's much more subtle in our meditation wanting to get somewhere wanting to make some progress the same contraction can go on we can have some idea based on an experience in a previous meditation retreat of some uh, bliss or peaceful feeling based on something we've read based on something somebody's told us whatever but some idea of what should be happening. And that idea of what should be happening gets us into a real mess in meditation. Because meditation ain't concerned with what should be happening. It's fundamentally, primarily and solely concerned with what is happening. And so if we notice that same kind of tunnel vision creeping in towards what's happening and what kind of should be my idea, if only I could get more concentrated, then I could really meditate. If only my legs weren't uncomfortable, then I'm sure I'd really get this meditation thing. We struggle on really thinking that the problem is in the legs. Just like we thought the 
Relief was in the bell. I think the success is in the, when the, the legs stop hurting. And then eventually the legs do stop hurting, and then there's nothing to keep us awake anymore. <laughs> I really I wasn't so sleepy. And then we wake up and if only I wasn't so hot, or if only I wasn't so full up. If only the guy next to me wasn't so annoying. <laughs> so we get that same tunnel vision, huh? in a slightly more subtle way, but in whatever way it shows itself. Can we call a spade a spade? Can we call obsession obsession rather than being seduced again and again and again into the thinking that what we really want is the bell to ring? Is that what we really came here for? That what we really want is whatever these little petty details are of the things I want to get hold of or get rid of. What we really want is that, oh, that relief, that ease, that spaciousness that has room for all this stuff of life because it is the stuff of life. There's no doing away with it. There's no doing away with it. We often have some rather strange transcendental view of spiritual practice that will somehow just manage to kind of lift off out of all this mucky old world and discover some satchitananda no? some there is that transcendent vision but it's not found apart from the world it's found in the midst of So where we look for it is in the midst of what we're experiencing. In the midst of our longing. In the midst of our aversion. So not that we have to stop wanting. Not that we have to stop trying to get rid of. But that when we feel that contraction, when we feel that sense of if only... It's like a, it's a call. It's saying, look here. Look here. This is where the work is. And therefore, this is where the possibility is. Right in the midst of that longing is the possibility for its release. For the relief from it. For the, ah. And knowing that space that has room for it. Obsessing about what I want and don't want. Obsessing around what I think. Big subject. How much energy and investment we put into cultivating, supporting and defending our beliefs. And again, this can run the whole gamut from the very kind of crude beliefs about um, politics or who's right and who's wrong against which all the so much kind of violence and, and disaster in our world is played out on the basis of conflicting beliefs to very subtle beliefs moment by moment in different ways that we just notice in meditation beliefs about myself beliefs about others beliefs about what should be happening 
I was just saying. And how much we're willing to shore up our beliefs. Because they, to surrender them, seems really threatening. Where does that, where does that leave me? We define ourselves so much. Well, what I think is, etc. Or the pressure to have a view, to have an opinion about something. The pressure to appear knowledgeable, or appear clever, or appear wise, or appear any of those things, to ourselves and to others. How much secret shame and guilt we often feel for not really feeling we're as clever or wise or, or, or knowledgeable as other people seem to have formed the strange impression that we are. They've obviously not seen the real me. Back and forth. Obsessing around what I think. And then if I think, if I'm wrong, there's a lot of pain and confusion in that. Feeling inadequate, stupid, foolish, ignorant. <coughs> and if I'm right, yuck. <laughs> there's a lot of pain in that too. Because that rightness, if we're feeding off that in any way, Shoring up our sense of who we are because we're right, clever, knowledgeable. That takes a lot of energy to shore up, defend. And the fear of being proved wrong has to be accompanied with fear. The sense that I'm right is completely built in with, automatically, the fear that I might be wrong. It has to be, because there are no universals in this kind of thinking. I don't mean to make the kind of postmodernist mistake that there's no universals at all. No? It doesn't matter what my view is about this bell. It doesn't matter what I think about this bell. If I hit it, it'll ring. No? But in terms of the way I construct all kinds of self-beliefs, beliefs about others, beliefs about life. There's a real tension that goes along with that. And we don't need to work out, is that, is that true or is that not true? But again, to look in our experience for where we obsess around our thinking where we construct our kind of a fragile self-sense through belief and where we hide behind it, need to defend it. Whole world of obsession that we're invited, again, not that there's anything wrong with thinking. Another bizarre, erroneous view about meditation, that it's somehow equivalent to a lobotomy. No? That is the... Why would we really want to come here for five days in the summer for that? Uh. But nevertheless, even though that sounds ridiculous to us, nevertheless, how frequently, how tragically, we get into all kinds of problems because I'm thinking. Well, that's what the mind does. That's what it's been doing for years and years and years. Thank goodness. If it hadn't been, we would have had a lot of trouble to get here yesterday without any thinking. Thinking is a fantastic capacity and faculty. 
But we tend to give it absolute authority to describe the way life is. And thinking is limited. Thinking can only work in terms of this and that, and me and you, and before and after, and here and there, and lots of different ways of carving life up into bits. That's what thinking does, and it's perfectly appropriate for exchanging information and uh, other things. But when we start to get down to the mysterious, thinking starts to splutter and cough and freak out. Why does it freak out? Because we've given it so much authority. Because we're obsessed around what I think, what I think, what I think. And therefore, when we start to approach the mysterious, we feel very disorientated. And sometimes, the thinking will whoosh back in to try and make sense of an experience that actually doesn't make sense. It's beyond sense. We put so much store by common sense. But actually in meditation what we're looking for is an uncommon sense. A deeper sense. A willingness to see not with our eyes but with our heart. A willingness to listen not with our ears but with our very being to the touch of life. All of this, the stuff that makes up the moments of our lives, the stuff that makes up our practice here, it's an opportunity for us to see deeply. It's an opportunity for us to see the way in which our obsession with what we want, our obsession with what we think, has contracted our life. And an opportunity in recognizing that to know a genuinely free relationship with it, to know the wide open spaciousness of life that can easily accommodate these petty little wants and thoughts and sore legs and other rather pathetic bubbles in life that come and go over here and that in my uh, strange obsession I think are so very important obsessing about who I am. The uh, philosophical debate or the theological debate and the or the secular any debate the various ways we obsess around who I am who I am to myself, who I am in relationship with others, who I am in the great scheme of things, and where I place myself in life. And the rather peculiar human arrogance, of course, where we place ourselves is right in the centre of the universe. So we look out and we see the universe limitlessly stretching in all directions. Oh yes, all of life. And here I am. What a strangeness. Particularly as we, that's what's going on for everyone else. Everyone. Now the centre of the universe can't be here and there. And there. And there. Well, maybe it can. 
But that sense of, again, not that there's anything wrong with being deeply and profoundly interested in who am I. Very profound question. But the, but the way we obsess around who we are, the way we fabricate who we are, I'm this kind of person, and we believe it to be true. We give it again, not philosophically, but in the moment, we give it an absolute authority. I am Martin. I am this age. I do this for a living. I am this kind of person. I have this kind of childhood. I have these sort of qualities. Oh, well, I'm a very shy person, we say. And that's it. We believe that that's the way I am. Sometimes people, particularly in meditation retreats, will come and say, uh, oh, well, um, I'm someone who's very... Um, I'm not at all good at putting things into words. And then they go on and give this extraordinary articulate description <laughs> of how terrible they are at putting things into words. And while they're going along and on reinforcing their, all their uselessness in putting things to words, I'm being deeply touched by their articulateness. <coughs> Almost anything we can say about ourselves in terms of qualities, we can easily be shown the other side. No? And by turns we think, oh, I'm, I'm so stupid. And then something goes right and we think, oh, I'm so clever. How is that? I'm not denying that one can exhibit both stupidity and cleverness. But trying to point to our obsessions around who I am lead us to give this absolute authority and therefore suffer it. Oh, I'm so stupid. As if that really says something about who I am. That's what's ludicrous. In the Advaita Vedanta tradition, in Hinduism, there's a whole spiritual practice based around this self-inquiry, this who am I? Practice of asking oneself as deeply as one's able, what is this? Or who am I? And there's books and books written about this practice. But in none of those books, thank goodness, will you find an answer. You'll just find endless encouragement on how to ask the question, why it's important to ask the question. No answer. The willingness to engage as profoundly as possible with this, with this mysterious sense of finding myself here in life and being deeply interested in that is really, really worth engaging with. But imagining that any kind of answer, I am this or I am that, can do it justice is to live in our limitations and in our obsessions. Any view we have of who I am needs to be shored up, needs to be defended, and there we are in that contraction again. Because what we are defies limitation, defies description, defies conception. And rather beautifully, that's all the Buddha would ever say about what we could call our true nature. He would only point to it in the negative. That means, as a description, as the undying, the unborn, the ungraspable, the inconceivable. ungraspable, that doesn't give us any purchase. Because anything we could say about that profound mystery of life would be a really quite tragic reduction to something finite, to something limited. 
So again, there's no problem, far from it, with being profoundly interested in this question of who am I? But our practice is to recognise our obsession around our identity and to be willing to not accept or not uh, settle for any limited description. Not to settle for anything which reveals itself to not be fundamentally true. And so just to have some suspicion when we hear ourselves say, I'm so stupid. Or I'm so clever. Or I'm so right. Or I'm so wrong. Or you're so whatever. Or it's so... Again, not that there's anything wrong in according labels. It's a useful means of communication. But to, be a, to see as closely as possible, moment by moment in our experience here over the days, to see as well as possible how, if we really believe that that's the way it is, and I don't mean believe philosophically, and ideas. I mean, actually start to relate to it as if that's true. If I say I'm so stupid, and I believe that that's in that fixedness, then I live out of that. Ow! That hurts. That's the same kind of contraction from all this, all the ways of experiencing and knowing my relationship with the world have been reduced in enormously from this vast mystery to I'm so stupid what a, what, a, what, a, what a painful way to live even if it's a very sweet and beautiful description if we say I'm so loving or if we say to someone else wow he or she is so kind so loving so beautiful It's a very sweet expression. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. But are we able to see that that is not the whole story? That nothing we can say about is ever the whole story? And therefore to let all of life in, in all its mystery, in all its inconceivability, And therefore, in its limitless vastness, that effortlessly has room for all of this. For all of this. For whatever we bring. Whatever we notice, whatever we discover within us, this too has its rest right here. And that's our responsibility. Our profound and beautiful ability to respond to this life in the widest sense, in a way so wide we can't imagine, we can't conceive of. And yet we can find ourselves right here in the midst of it, welcomed into life. And if it's in this endeavour, in this aspiration that we spend our days here, then it'll be to our greatest welfare and benefit. And in the spirit of the welfare and benefit of all. May it be so.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.